I'm going to move this microphone because... Let's, uh, let's go to God in prayer together in preparation for the message. Heavenly Father, I pray that you be with uh, me today. Help me to uh, be faithful to the word. Help me to be uh, just focused on sharing the gospel, on unpacking the truth of your scriptures. Um, help, me to, uh, help me to be just focused on that and not allow anything else to get in the way. Uh, anything else to distract me or uh, to draw my attention. I pray that you be with the folks who are here today. Uh, help them to hear from, from your son this morning. Help them to know Jesus more uh, through hearing the word preached, through through uh, just being in your presence. I pray, Lord God, that, that you would take all of the worries, all the stress, all of the the um, distractions away from us, Lord God, and, and uh, just bring us to your presence as we... Um, as we worship, as we, uh, as we uh, pursue you, in Christ's name I pray, amen. Um, years ago, thank you Titus, thank you, years ago, I, uh, when I first became a Christian, so it would be like 30 plus years ago, I... Uh, one of the first books I read as a as a young believer was a book entitled uh, Disappointment with God. It was written by Philip Yancey, and I've read it probably, I don't know, I don't even know how many times anymore, um, but I've read it uh, every few years. I've read it again. I've, I've quoted from it. I've drawn off it. It is one of those weird books that I just randomly picked up off a shelf in a Christian bookstore and... Uh, and has impacted so much of how I live my life, how I follow Jesus. Uh, it's, it's an interesting book. It talks about this idea that, uh, like, it, it attempts to answer the question, like, is God intentionally hiding himself? Or uh, is God unfair? Uh, and, and there's some really powerful moments in the text, really powerful moments in terms of uh, how we understand faith. But, but perhaps one of the best, uh, like, sections in this text, like, like he looks at these questions, but he looks at them in light of a young seminarian who wrote a book, like a paper on Job. And it was a brilliant paper, and he was going to submit it for publication. And he came to Yancey and asked him, Philip Yancey, not Yancey, the little girl who goes to our church, um, and, and asked him to, to review it. And they discussed Job and all the different things that were going on in the, in the book and this, this paper. And in the end, um, he like over the course of several years they interact, and he comes to Yancey eventually and says, I've decided that I hate God. Uh, I, and then he says, well, that's too much. That was an emotional thing to say. I just don't believe in him anymore because, because he's not there, because he has an answer. And he, he tells Philip Yancey this story of uh, how his life had gotten really difficult, and a lot of the things in the story are, are really not big. There are things like uh, broke up with his girlfriend, and... Uh, experienced some financial strain and, and all this, but nothing like earth-shattering. And in the end, he, he was so emotional and overwhelmed, he prayed and said, God, just show yourself to me, and I'll follow you forever. Just show me yourself, and I will, I will belong to you. And, um, and God didn't. 
And, and so he burned all of his theology books. He burned the paper. He, he, and he walked away from his faith and quit seminary and picked a new direction in life. And, and Yancey um, said something very powerful in relation to this particular uh, young man's statement. God, just show me yourself. Just do this and I will belong to you. Um, over the course of the book, he talks about the temptation in the wilderness. And he says, this is that weird moment that we sometimes approach God with where we say, God, do things my way just once. Bow to me just once, and I'll give you my whole kingdom. I'll give you everything. All you have to do is meet me on my level. Give me this thing, and you can have everything in return. Um, the problem is that if God does that, he's not really God. Like the power broker in the equation where I approach God and say, do this for me and I will give you everything. The power broker in that equation is me. Um, in the story, Yancey points out, like, look, he's throwing the same temptation before God that, that Satan does. And I'm not saying that in moments of pain, like, because actually, if you read Job, this is a recurring theme in Job, where Job is like, God, where are you? Let me plead my case. Um, let me argue my innocence before you and and at the end of the day like like god is god and god won't bow to us um as we dive into our final temptation today we're we we've been working our way through the matthew account of the wilderness temptations uh and we've done the first two turn bread into or stone into bread i could turn bread into stone all the time just by over baking it and not eating it quick enough but turn uh, turn stones into bread, and, and uh, the uh, temptation to jump off the temple and perform this very public miracle, right? Uh, and God will catch you, and it'll be really awesome. And we, over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about these, and, and we've talked about how, uh, like various aspects of them, right? Like, so we, we have talked about this idea that Jesus is following the path of Israel through the course of Matthew, and he's doing all of these things that Israel did. He's facing their temptations. He's doing this stuff that Israel did, like he was in Egypt for a little while, just like Israel. He is uh, baptized, which is, uh, we find out in Paul, like like baptism when the, the Jewish people pass through the Red Sea on their way into the wilderness to go to the Promised Land. They're, like that's a type, a symbol of baptism. It's pointing forward to baptism. Um, they, and like in the desert, they face temptations. God tests them to see what's in their heart. And we see that in the book of Deuteronomy. We've beaten this one to death. I'm going to try not to get too stuck in it. Um, but he's doing all of this stuff that Israel did and he's walking this path. Only he's doing it perfectly. And the reason he's doing it perfectly is because we cannot, um, I don't know who I, oh, uh, sorry. It didn't work, Lori. Um, we cannot, uh, we cannot obey God perfectly because of our sinful nature. And he does it perfectly, and then he dies for our sins. Like, he is a perfect, like, no sin, no blemish, and then offered up to God in our place. And we are forgiven, whereas he takes punishment for our sin. And, like, that's sort of the idea here. And throughout the temptations he faces, so the first two are bread and then throwing yourself down, um, he quotes from Deuteronomy, and like they are, in those quotations, we see where there are parallels to different things that the Jewish people uh, faced. And this last one is no different. And, and so I'm going to jump into the text 
rather than getting bogged down too deep into the details. If you're interested, um, the sermons are online. The deep dives explore all of this stuff very thoroughly. Uh, but the third temptation, and it's kind of funny, the third temptation. If there's a Bible in front of you, pick it up and uh, go with me to the book of Matthew. Um, I was talking with someone the other day. This would be Matthew 4. Uh, that when I, uh, when I was a kid and I, I went to a Lutheran church for a brief period of time and they had one of those signs where they put up the verses every week and the hymn numbers and all that and you could like go right to the hymn and I said, oh yeah, I should probably get one of those now so that people can like bookmark their Bibles in advance. Uh, but I don't want to buy a sign and I won't remember to do it and so we're not actually going to do that. Um, so I'm hoping I gave you enough time to find the book of Matthew chapter 4. Uh, and we're going to pick up actually in 8. Um, so, you know, don't test God. And then chapter 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. So, um, why a mountain? Here's where we're going to start in looking at this particular text. Uh, the mountaintop thing is a theme in Matthew. You see it turn up over and over again. Matthew brings mountains in for various, like, big deal moments. So the Sermon on the Mount is preached on a mountaintop, right? Uh, one of his first, you know, he, he heals the lepers, the crucifixion, um, over and over again. We see all of these moments where major events happen at, on mountaintops, and that's because um, for ancients, particularly ancient Jews, uh, well, ancients in general, mountaintops were places close to God. Right? Like, where's God? He's up there. Well, how do you get close to him? You climb a mountain. Makes sense. And actually, if you go, like, it's actually not how it works, but this is, was what they believed. And so if you look in the Old Testament, there are examples of this, like where uh, Elijah goes to the mountaintop and encounters God there. Or, um, you know, uh, Elijah also faces the false prophets of Baal on top of a mountain, Mount Carmel. Um, and so there are all these instances where mountaintop stuff takes place. And in this particular series of, like, actually storms on mountains are oftentimes where the gods would fight. Like, pagans believe that the gods would fight in mountaintops. And so we see Jesus in this last confrontation, this last temptation. Where does it take place? On a mountaintop. It is the final face down between him and Satan in terms of very overt face-to-face confrontation. He will not be present in this form again in the Gospels, though there is one other direct confrontation that happens at the end. Um, And we'll get to that later, probably next week. Um, So, um, at the mountaintop, they close it out. The other thing that's happening here is the first temptation is in the wilderness, which is the valley. And then they go to the temple, which is a mountaintop. And then the final temptation is a very high mountain where they're able to see everything in the whole world. Uh, Which probably, by the way, is, I don't know whether it's a literal place. They've had a whole lot of discussion like theologians and Bible scholars. There's just not a high mountaintop where you can see the whole world. It's actually because it's curved. Um, and so, like, this may have been a spiritual place, it may have been something else, we just don't know. It may have been that he took him to a very high mountain and he had a vision of the nations of the world, we don't know, okay? So we're going to dig into that. The more important idea here is low, middle, high. Why? Because Satan is elevating himself more and more, and Jesus is being drawn into this place of direct face-to-face conflict. And this happens as, uh, like, each of the sins, each of the temptations represents a different kind of sin or a different approach to God. The first one is make this bread, meaning do your will, 
right? Jesus, do your will. The second temptation, throw yourself down. Force God to do your will. And then the third one is, do my will and I will give you. It's kind of an interesting thing. And so Satan like slowly elevates himself. And then finally in this last confrontation, they are on top of a mountain. Um, Here's the other reason that it's a big deal. Uh, Coveting is something Paul identifies as the root of all sin. To covet is to want something that doesn't belong to you. If you would like to see how this really works, spend a little time with three five-year-olds or two five-year-olds. You know why? Because if one of them has something, everybody else wants it. They don't want fairness, mind you, because they'll say, that's not fair. You give one an ice cream cone and not the other, that's not fair. But it's not the kid with the ice cream cone who's complaining, right? Coveting is desiring something that does not belong to you and then creating, like, like sinning in the process of, you know, achieving it. It is a sin of the heart, but more so it is a sin of the eyes. And so when Satan takes him up on this mountain and he shows him all of this stuff, he's showing him everything and saying, this could all be yours. When I was sick as a kid, I'm surely I'm not the only one who ever had to do this, except the homeschool kids who were home anyway. Um, But when I was a kid and I'd get sick, I would stay home and I would watch The Price is Right. And I would eat saltine crackers and drink Sprite or 7-Up, usually 7-Up because it tastes worse and they didn't want us to enjoy being sick. Um, But you would watch The Price is Right and they would show you all of the stuff you could have. All of this could be yours. And why do they do that? Because they want you to buy that junk, right? They want you to buy it. And so they're like showing you on TV. Hey, Titus. I appreciate the help, but um, and so they're showing them it like sins of the eyes, like coveting begins in the eyes. And so he shows them all this stuff and tempts him into this. Hey, all of this could be yours. You can get this stuff if you just bow to me once. Just do it once. Um, there's a great line in uh, uh, the the uh, Lord's Prayer where Jesus says, lead us not into temptation. Um, I'm going to tell you, we live in a world where you're constantly, constantly surrounded by things that will attempt to entice your eyes, right? Gentlemen, men, I, I would challenge you, spend one week not looking at, a, at any pictures or any images or any, any examples of women dressed scantily. Um, just look down or look up when you encounter that. You know what's going to happen? Spend a heck of a lot of time looking down or up. Because women barely dressed are used to advertise everything. Why? Because men look at stuff like that and it makes it easy to sell cars or hamburgers or whatever. Or um, food. There was a little while, like, like it feels like whenever I fast, there's food commercials everywhere. Everywhere. Um, and none of them are true is the other problem. Like nothing ever looks like the picture. But... Um, Advertising works amazingly well in the sense that they put stuff in front of your eyes and you want it. And because you want it, you're drawn into it. What um, lead us not into temptation is, is not an ask, God, keep me from being tempted, or God, don't bring me places that I'll be tempted. It is um, in Aramaic, and I quoted the, the commentary on this because I thought it was interesting. In light of the probable Aramaic underlying Jesus' prayer, these words seem best taken as, don't let me succumb to temptation or don't abandon me 
to temptation. What does that mean? Don't abandon me to temptation. Well, as Jesus is being tempted, he is fasting, the Holy Spirit is with him, and he is bolstered, strengthened by the Spirit's presence. And that is how he is not abandoned, because God is with him. And actually, every time he responds, he responds with Scripture. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is prompting him, saying, hey, look, here's the verse, here's the passage, here's the concept, here's the thing. And like God takes care of him, does not abandon him in his temptation. For us, when we pray, lead us not into temptation. Um, I grew up saying the Lord's Prayer before every meal. Did you guys ever do this, the Lord's Prayer? Do you know this one? Um, It is a good prayer because this idea, and a lot of the ideas, and it covers all the bases, but this idea of do not abandon me in temptation, like it's a big deal because we are surrounded by it. It is constant. And actually it's worse now because most of us, I left my phone sitting over there, but most of us carry around a little device in our pocket which we can pull out and hear or see or buy or order or like whatever, anything ever, right? Titus, stop wandering around, buddy. You need to sit down somewhere. Um, Last time. But that temptation we can do in secret. We can hide with it. Um, God, we need to pray this extra hard right now because it's everywhere and it's constant. Don't leave me to be tempted. So that is the opening. He brings him up to the mountaintop. He shows him everything. He tempts him. Look at all of this stuff. This could be yours. So we're going to verse 9. Um, and he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Fall down basically means to throw yourself at my feet. Like it is an act of worship you know, in a phrase, right? So all you have to do, and it's funny because I've talked about this one with a few people, and I've had a lot of people say, well, this is like the lamest temptation ever. Why, you know, like, like of course he's going to say no to that. It's obvious, right? Like, you know, people, it is one thing to, you know, it's one thing to steal in a little way that you're not thinking about it as stealing, right? Like, you know, uh, uh, I don't know. They, we, we all, most people, it is easy to, it's easy to take things that don't belong to you if it's not something you think carefully about, if it's not that big a deal. It's easy to um, um, absorb things. What? Like cookies. Thank you. Oh, my gosh, that is the best example. For me, cookies. They do not leave cookies in the church during the week anymore. You know why? Because I will take one or two. Every day. But it's just one or two. Quite a different thing if I kick in somebody's door and steal them out of your freezer, right? Or, uh, or something along those lines. It's a very different thing. One is a very small sin. One is a huge sin. Uh, shh, hey, Titus, go sit with mom. Go, go, go. Go sit with mom. Um, the, the challenge that arises there is, like, we look at that and we say, well, for him to throw himself down, that's ridiculous. Of course he's not going to do that. That is a dumb sin. It is a dumb temptation. But it actually isn't um, because there's a lot of things playing in here. This is basically an ends justifies the means moment. He's saying, listen, look at the world around you. Look at the suffering. Look at the wickedness. Look at the evil. Look at, like, basically from the point where the fall happens to now, God has been in the process of reconciling the creation to himself, 
right? Like you look at all of the moments in the scripture where God reaches out to his people and tries to draw them back. Or why he even picked people? Because he had no people that worshipped him or knew him. He created people to know him. And so then he's like, he's like reaching out to them. And their job was actually to go and tell the world about him. And they didn't do it. And so he's constantly trying to get them to engage with him so they'll go tell the world about him. And nobody's doing their job except God. And like what he's saying is, listen, all of that work, all of that time, all of that struggle, you can just jump right over all of it. Not only that, um, we talked last week very a little bit about the idea that like when he's standing on the temple corner and Satan's saying, throw yourself down, he would have been in a spot, that southeast corner, um, where he would see the place where he would pray and sweat blood, where Judas would betray him, Right? Like, he can see all of this stuff, and he sees Jerusalem, which is right there. And, like, one of the first things he says, like, he approaches Jerusalem, he sees it in the distance, and he says, oh, you know, he talks about it like, like, a, like a mother wanting to pull her chicks close to her, like a mother hen. You know, how, how long have I desired to pull you close to me? And, and, like, this moment of, I can have all of this right now, and I can skip over it. I don't have to do the work. I can do this the easy way. And it is an ends justify the means argument. And really in a real huge, ugly way because Jesus is going to be crucified. I'm going to tell you, crucifixion, like, and actually the whipping and the beating and the humiliation and everything else, on top of the fact that like during the crucifixion, God poured his wrath out for all of our sins onto Jesus. This shortcut, that was like a good shortcut. You know what I mean? Like, this looks good. And it's not the only time he's ever tempted with this. Um, And we'll get back to that in a little bit. But um, it is actually a powerful argument. And it is a powerful argument that goes after his identity. We've talked a little bit about this idea that every time Jesus is tempted, he is tempted in a way that goes after his core identity as the Son of God. If you are really the Son of God, turn these bread into stone. If you are really, turn these stones into bread. Keep doing that. Um, if you are really the son of God, throw yourself down. He promised to catch you and you wouldn't get hurt if you are really. But he doesn't say if you're really the son of God. Instead, he says you can have all the nations. Well, if we jump to Psalm 2, which God himself like says the line as he's being baptized right before he's gone into the wilderness, the son of God, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, all this other stuff. Um, Psalm 2 is this coronation psalm that God was reciting as Jesus was being baptized and basically coronated as the king of Israel, the Davidic king. Whole other sermon, no time to talk about it today. But seven, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter and you will shatter them like pottery. Now, the promise there is if you ask it of me, I will give you everything. And the Davidic kings, the guys who are in the line of David, would hear this promise and they would hear all of this stuff and they understood, I will be king of Israel and this is my job. And the nations is probably symbolic of something, right? But for Jesus, this is true. Jesus, as the Son of God, receives the nations. They are his. And so what Satan is actually offering him is something that belongs to him. Right? He's offering something that is core to who he is as the Son of God. Now, 
Sorry, my mouth was getting dry. Now, he's offering him something that's already his, but he's also offering him a shortcut, right? He's offering him a way around. You can have all of this and not. You can have all of it, and all you have to do is make me number one, just for a moment, not even forever. It's a small price to pay. Here's the thing. We see this temptation over and over and over and over again throughout the Scriptures. The three examples I want to point to here. First one, Adam, right? The temptation to Adam. God knows. Did God really say not to eat any of that fruit? He's talking to Eve, but Adam's standing right there. Adam doesn't say anything, so he is like owning it. Um, and really the scriptures give credit to Adam. But the temptation here is, um, did God really say? And he's like, but you won't actually die. He knows that the moment you eat it, you'll be like God. You know why that's a terrible offer? Because Adam was made in God's image. <laughs> he's like offering him something that already belongs to him. Same thing Jesus faces, right? You'll be like God. And then the fine print, knowing the difference between good and evil. It's like knowing what it feels like to be burned by sticking your hand in a campfire. It's stupid, right? <laughs> like, it doesn't make any sense, but that's the offer. Um, it's a little like, I read uh, this week, there's a guy who is filing a class action suit against Burger King for the quarter pounder ad. Or the Whopper? It's the Whopper. Like, because the, and it, like, like he's saying, well, none of it looks like the ad. They're selling me something that doesn't look like the picture, which I really hope he wins because I want ads to look like what I get when I get drive through food. Or maybe I don't because I just wouldn't eat it anymore. Um, but fact of the matter is the ad is almost always a lie because otherwise you wouldn't buy it, right? You wouldn't buy a Crunchwrap Supreme if you saw what it really looked like. Sure as heck wouldn't buy it if you watched him making it. You wouldn't. I'm, Satan offers him something he doesn't need. He already has. Offers it to Adam, and it works. With the Israelites, now, probably... The temptation to worship another god is, is at the foot of uh, Mount Sinai, right? But we're going to look at this from a slightly different angle. They're there. They're at the promised land. They've crossed the desert. All they've got to do is cross the Jordan, and they can conquer the promised land. And God has told them over and over again, the, the land belongs to you. It is yours. You're going to go in there. You're going to move into these houses and have these farms that are already planted and everything else, and it'll be awesome. It all belongs to you. All you have to do is go in and get it. So they sent spies in. They sent 12 spies, and they come back, and 10 of them are like, yeah, there ain't no way we're going to win this. Those guys are way too big and tough. We should not go. Now, up until this point, God has done everything on their behalf. They have not had to fight a single battle for real. God wins their battles for them. He drowns the enemy in the Red Sea. He does all of this stuff. He's already told them, this belongs to you. And when they're tempted, they're tempted with, yeah, that... God may say it belongs to us, but it doesn't. We shouldn't go. It's not exactly bowing, but it's not the, like, it is the same temptation. Who are you really? Did God really say, maybe you should do things my way? Go back to Egypt, right? Remember how good the bread was there? I mean, it wasn't, but remember? It's a Burger King ad. Um, Finally, I'm going to cite David. There's probably several examples of this with David. But in 1 Chronicles, there's this great line. I may have bookmarked it. Let's see. I did not. Um, in First Chronicles, there's this great line. David, at the end of his life, does a census of the people. And in Chronicles, it says, Satan stood against Israel and like basically tempts David into counting the people. Well, why is that a big deal? It's a big deal, number one, because they only do censuses at God's command. And so when David does it, he does it so he can look and say, look at how much stuff I've got. 
y'all ever, I probably, maybe y'all don't. Um, I think there is a temptation to pull the look at everything I've got and everything I've done, how awesome am I thing, right? Like that Scrooge McDuck jump into the lake of gold kind of thing. Anybody ever do that? You look at your stuff, you look at your farm, you look at your, your accomplishments in life and say, man, I've really nailed it. That's what he's tempting David into doing, and David succumbs. Why? Because David wants to look and say, look at how great I've done, but it's all a gift from God. And he disobeys God by counting. This temptation gets packaged a lot of different ways. It is not always, bow before me and you'll get what you want. It is often, cut this corner and it's all yours. Vote for me and your wildest dreams will come true. Um, like that sort of thing. Like these things happen. Satan has not abandoned this strategy. And as dumb as the temptation looks, we face it all the time. We just face it in different ways. Um, finally, yeah, so and in this case, all three of them were offered things that were already theirs. Adam was already like God. Israel already owned the land. All they had to do was go take it, and they didn't. They doubted God and did not follow. For David, David, the kingdom was under him. David's lineage would be kings forever. And David disobeyed because he wanted to build himself up, because he wanted to puff up his, 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 his pride and all this other stuff. The same is true of Jesus. All the nations belong to him. And actually, all authority already belongs to him. Um, Matthew 28. Let me see if I can get there easily. By a footnote. Postmark or post it. Um, this is uh, 18. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's the Great Commission. It's actually printed on the back wall, sort of um, ish. Uh, what is he doing there? He's saying, listen, I got all authority because God has given it to me. He had all authority at that point. It was not a thing that just suddenly came to him after the resurrection. He's got this authority. He chooses to submit to the Father. And then, like he says, guys, it's time to make the nations ours. Go get it. But this is the long way, right? It's the right way. It is the way that requires hurt and obedience and submission and patience and and all like 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 it is the it's God's way but it's not the easy way and so Jesus having been offered something that was already his he says no but then he eventually gets it anyway and so it is like the the gospel has been preached everywhere in the world there are converts from every culture and language and like and it continues to happen it is an amazing thing um, Christianity, our faith, what we believe, grew out of nothing and took over the world. This promise is a shortcut. That's all there is to it. And he's offered it over and over and over and over again. And the church has offered it over and over again. Um, instant world change, like the shortcut, instead of making disciples, we'll vote in the right government. And they'll do all the stuff for us and we won't have to make disciples. We won't have to preach the gospel. It's the easy way. It doesn't work. Uh, I'm going to go to 10, Jesus' response. Uh, Why do I have that bookmarked? I probably shouldn't move it. Uh, All right, so verse 10. Then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him 
and serve only him. So Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy again. And it's actually like part of a prayer that they say every day, the Shema, right? Every morning and every evening, every Jewish man since before Jesus was born until today, um, theoretically every, but it's, you know, one of the daily, one of the daily prayers, like the most important prayer, they would get up and they would, they would pray this prayer. The Lord our God, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And by the way, it is hear, O Israel, but the word hear means hear and obey. Um, and it's in this Deuteronomy passage. It's actually verse 13. Um, but he loosely quotes this prayer, he says, every day. Um, I'm going to jump back to this text here real quick. I think I was going to, yeah, let's, uh, let's come back to it. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll do it. Um, so he loosely quotes this passage as part of the Shema. It is a daily confession. It is a daily remind her, a reminder of who they are. They come back and they remind themselves every day, this is who I am, this is what I do. Um, and, and why do they do that? Well, uh, 6, which is the passage that Jesus is quoting, uh, listen, Israel, the Lord your God, this is starting in verse 4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I am giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on your doorpost of your house and on your city gates. Um, why is he telling them to do all this? Because it's important. Because they have to remember who they are. Because they go back to this over and over again. And actually, most of the Jewish law, most of the Jewish customs are about this. One of the dumbest arguments you hear every once in a while, people are like, oh, you don't have to follow the Old Testament laws. You wear clothing that's not of one kind of fabric. It's mixed fabric, like because that's a command God gives. Don't wear mixed fabric, one cloth, cotton or polyester or whatever. Uh, he doesn't mention polyester except in the message. Um, nobody's awake, huh? <laughs> it's awful. Uh, or I'm not funny. So... Um, That wear one fabric, the idea there is, if you only wear cotton, you can look at it and say, oh yeah, I'm set apart. I don't blend with the world, right? If the world believes this and they do this stuff, but the gospel tells me this, I don't become like those people. Or if the, the Torah, actually, since this is Old Testament law, there are a lot of those things that are reminders to do things that God has commanded them to do based on who they are. So these reminders, like, this is who you are. Don't forget who you are. Don't leave this place and forget you belong to Jesus. You belong to God. You are God's chosen people. God brought you out of Egypt. God brought you out of slavery. God delivered you through the Red Sea. God did this. God did that. Like, these things are reminders. Um, Jesus had this passage on his lips, this whole section of Deuteronomy. Actually, he quotes from 6 and 8 uh, in response to Satan. But like when he's pushed and when he's strained and when he's stretched, he goes back to this truth. Hey, the Lord your God is one. Don't worship any other gods. Which is actually verse 14 or 13, 14, 13. Uh, be careful and or be careful not to forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of a place of slavery. Fear the Lord your God, worship him, and take your oaths in his name. Um, do not follow other gods. 
uh, et cetera, et cetera. So the idea here being that he's quoting out of this passage because he knows it, because they all know it. They all repeat it to themselves. They all remind themselves every day. And the truth is that to worship anything but God is to sin. Um, by the way, this is what Peter does in uh, 16, right? Uh, Matthew 16. Um, I'm going to summarize it. Um, Peter says, Jesus says, well, I'm going to be handed over to be crucified. And Peter's like, no, not you, Lord, never you. And Peter turned, Jesus turns around and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Um, there's an argument that Satan's in him or Satan's speaking through him. I think that he is being tempted. And the temptation is you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to do God's will. You can do it your way or my way. He says, nope. We're not doing that. There is a difference, by the way, between how Jesus addresses Satan and how he addresses Peter, and we'll get to that in a little bit. So what's the temptation here? First off, ancient, in the ancient world, people worshipped their gods as a tit-for-tat, right? It was a transaction. The gods didn't like you. They weren't your friends. They didn't watch out for you. They didn't care what you did as long as you weren't loud or annoying or like as long as you gave them what was theirs, they would take care of you. But the guys didn't care about you. In the ancient world, if you wanted to have good crops, you offered a sacrifice. If you forgot to offer a sacrifice, you're in trouble, potentially, if the gods notice. Um, when Paul speaks in Athens to the uh, philosophers, and he says, hey, you've got this altar to an unknown god. The reason most cities had an altar to an unknown god was because they were covering their bases. They would sacrifice. Like, we don't know who we're sacrificing to, but if we forgot you, here's your stuff. Why? Because if you didn't sacrifice to God, he might kill you. The little G God, um, not big G God. The book of Job ends with the basic idea that we were, or the book of Job, like one of the central ideas to it, since we talked about that at the beginning, um, but it's one of the main things that's driven out in the book of Job. God is warning the people, I am God. You worship me because I'm God, not because I give you stuff, not because of anything else. I am God, and I'm worthy of worship, and that's why you worship me. And you've got to trust me, not because I make things obvious to you, not because I give you all the answers, not because I'm you know, constantly waiting on you hand and foot, but rather because I am God. And the Jews constantly struggled with this. Do this, and God will be nice to you. Offer this, do your sacrifice, do this, and God will favor you. It's not how the scriptures work. It's not how God operates. We are called to love and worship God because he is God. Because he's God. I do not do nice things for my wife so that I get stuff. Men, if you do nice things for your wife and think, I do these nice things, therefore she'll do these nice things for me, she knows. Wives are not easily tricked. Wow, somebody just got hit, but it was not a wife hitting a husband. I thought that was, was a moment of, oh, wow, sorry. Um, <laughs> there, I, y'all are awake. Um, the temptation is, give me this and I'll give you that. He is being tempted into a pagan observation. Do what the pagans do. Do what the Israelites did. They offered sacrifices to a statue so they could get their way. Right? Like, that's the temptation here. Do what I want, you will get what you want. But this is not how it works with God. It is not how we are called to be. We are called to be something better, something different. We do not trade love. We do not trade worship. We worship God because he's God. I love my wife because she's my wife. I love my kids because they're my kids. Um, I love them even 
when they're obnoxious or when I have to yell at them or whatever, like because they're my kids, not because they're good or well-behaved or whatever. Like I love them because they're my kids. And so it is with God. He loves us without reservation, and we love him because he's God. Um, why is this a serious temptation? Why is it a big deal? First off, earthly power is a thing that the church has been lured by, and that's what this is. You can rule the world with an iron fist. You can have it all right now. You don't have to sacrifice yourself. You don't have to die for these people. You don't have to anything. You can just have it and rule it. That's the temptation. But the church does this, right? Um, one of the things that Jesus warns his disciples about, he's like, look, guys, um, the kings of the Gentiles, the rulers of the Gentiles, they, they lord over each other. We don't do that. The one who wants to be great in my kingdom, what do they do? They serve. They lower themselves. They love. Um, the church did not become what it is today through conquest. No matter what revisionist historians and everybody else thinks, the church became what it is because the gospel is infectious and it changes lives. We're often tempted into politics, into wealth, into prestige. Look at how awesome I am. All of these things. And it's a temptation the church faces today. It is prevalent. It is constant. It is a struggle. Uh, the New Testament warns about this particular temptation over and over again. Um, we'll talk about that uh, in the deep dive. Uh, if we, excuse me, the last thing I wanted to touch on with this is it is easy to approach God in this way. God if you do this, I will love you. If you do this, I will worship you. I will follow you. I will do these things. That's the essence of the temptation with the, the um, prosperity gospel. Do this and God will just give you whatever you want. Um, that is not how we're called to be. That's not how we're called to live. Um, how do we apply this? Oh, my goodness, I have so much. Um, First off, Satan attacks us in our identity, and the same is true for us. We have to come back to our place um, where we remind ourselves who we are in Christ. Got it? It's the Shema. They said it every day. Why? So they knew who they were. We can forget who we are very easily. Our flesh will fight against us in this. Why? Because the flesh wants to sin. If we resist this, if we go back over and over and over again to the truth, I am dead in Christ, but risen in Christ. The old Eric that struggles for control of my life is not the Eric that's in control. I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. I follow God. I belong to him. I need to be this person. I am created, or I'm saved for the purpose of doing good works and serving Christ. I don't sin all the more that grace can abound. That's in Romans 6, which I noted in my thing. Um, I don't sin all the more so grace can abound. I recognize that I died to sin, and I'm now risen in Christ, and I walk with and in Christ. I imitate him. Um, there are daily, there are regular reminders that are with us. Um, prayer, reading the scriptures, like these are daily reminders. Um, our baptism, you know, we're commanded to be baptized. Why? Is a reminder that I died and was risen again in Christ, was buried and brought back to life. Um, our baptism is one. Taking the Lord's Supper and reminding ourselves that we consume Christ. Uh, foot washing is something the Church of God, like, uh, it, you know, this is one of our regular things, or supposedly. Um, but we serve, we love, we lower ourselves. Um, we study the Word. We worship as the body. Why is it important to worship as the body? Because you surround yourself with people 
who know Christ, who remind you who you are in Christ. You focus on the word together, like, like Deuteronomy says, walking down the road and looking at the word and discussing these truths together, putting it on your doorpost, and you walk in and out, you remind yourself, as I walk out the door, this is who I am. As I walk in the door to deal with my family, this is who I am. I need to put one of those up because there are days I walk out the door and I forget that I am in Christ. Or I get tired and frustrated and angry and I walk in the door and I forget I am in Christ. I'm not Pastor Eric. I'm not Dad Eric. I am Eric saved by Jesus whose identity is rooted in Jesus. Um, Fellowship, all of these things, these are our disciplines, our spiritual workouts that remind us. Um, The last bit of application I'm going to do today, and I'll throw the rest into the deep dive, uh, is from James 4. Uh, James talks about this idea that if we resist Satan, he will flee from us. Um, How does Jesus resist Satan? He quotes scripture. He's told lies and he points to the truth, right? Now, on your own, when you get home, sit down and read James 4. Because on its own, that's powerful. If Satan attacks you, you resist him and he'll flee. Just don't let him run you over. Go to the scriptures. Go to prayer. Fill yourself with the Spirit. Break out the, the, the shield of faith and the sword of the word and do your battle. And you will win because that is how God has designed it. Um, the problem is a lot of times we leave our shield at home or we don't even carry our sword anywhere we go because we don't bother to learn the scriptures. But what's amazing about it is that verses 1 through 12 there, it's all about the church. And it's all about infighting in the church and gossiping and unforgiveness and division and all of these things that destroy the church and how we don't pray and seek Christ to fill us up and to take care of us. All of those things are around this passage about like, hey, resist Satan and he'll flee from you. What's that in context of? Fellowship, prayer, walking with God. And it puts it all into context. What we are supposed to be as the body is glued together. It is our identity. Our identity in Christ and in the body are integrally linked. We cannot separate them. We are designed to live this way. And beyond that, when we resist Satan, we resist Satan as a body. We resist Satan as he tries to divide the body, to create infighting, to create resentment or bitterness or unforgiveness or whatever it is. That is how Satan works with us. Um, My challenge to you this week, number one, is to read James 4 is to look at yourself and say, do I remind myself every day who I am in Christ? Do I wake up in the morning and say, I am a new creation in Christ? Do I go back to this well over and over again? Is it my identity? Or do I forget from Sunday to Sunday or whatever? Um, The best part of the week for me, the two best days, Monday morning and Wednesday morning, because I sit and talk about Scripture with like other believers. And it reminds me, God has done amazing things for me. Nothing ever compares with that. Um, I love my family. I'm not saying anything about time with my family, but being reminded with other men like, I belong to Jesus, I am in Christ. It's it's glorious. It's what feeds our souls. Let's go to God in prayer and I'll let you go. Uh, The kids are getting restless. Heavenly Father, I I pray that you'd be with us. I pray that um, you uh, you would give us strength, give us patience, draw us into your presence and help us to remember that we are yours, that we belong to you, that that we are to worship you alone, that we're to resist the temptation to take shortcuts, to do things according to the world's way in order to get what we want. Lord God, help us to 
avoid the, the deep and powerful abiding temptation to, to, to justify the ends or justify the means by pointing to the end. Help us to be your people. Help us to justify everything we do with Scripture, with the Word of God, with the blood of Christ on us. Help us to teach our children this. Help us to discuss it with each other and remind each other so that when the day comes that we are tempted, that we're tempted to to abandon, to, to gossip, to fight, to whatever, that we are reminded that the Lord is one, um, that we are to bow to no other gods, that we only belong to you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Have a good Sunday, guys.